and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And our guest today is Jacopo della Quercia. Jacopo is an educator and history writer, perhaps best known for his more than 100 articles on the comedy website Cracked.com. His work has been featured in BBC America, CNN Money, The Huffington Post, and Slate. As an academic, Jacopo has taught classes on medieval and Renaissance history, literature, and art at institutions such as Rowan University and the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at NYU. Jacopo is the author of the recently released novel, License to Quill. Welcome, Jacopo. Thank you very kindly for having me here. Uh, Jacopo, License to Quill is described as a James Bond-esque spy thriller starring William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe during history's real-life gunpowder plot. Mm -hmm, That's right. I uh, got uh, all this history that I could from this time period which in real life was the golden age of English espionage. James Bond, MI6, in real life, this is where it all began. And rather than tell several non-fictions, I got all the history that I could, all the real people that I could, real spies, real conspiracies, and wove them all together in just the most exciting, action-packed adventure that I could, based on real history and centered on William Shakespeare as he was running Macbeth, which in real life coincided with Guy Fawkes' gunpowder plot. Well, it's an interesting chapter that I read when Shakespeare meets Guy Fawkes in the tavern and mm-hmm. Fawkes engages him to write uh, Macbeth with a few stipulations. Is that based in historical fact or is it something that you dreamed up? Well, first of all, who is Guy Fawkes? I dimly remember this from my junior high school history classes. <laughs> okay, so, so Guy Fawkes, at the time he was known as Guido Fawkes, he was this uh, basically a... Radical Roman Catholic, I don't like using the term, but they called him a papist terrorist. And he's actually become a figurehead for the sort of uh, the cyber group Anonymous. They use the Guy Fawkes mask that we've seen from V for Vendetta. Guy Fawkes, he was a bit of a demolitions expert and, as I said, a radical Catholic. And the truth is, England during Shakespeare's time was going through a real-life Cold War. And they had just won the war with Spain. And I'm talking they had just won. They, they signed the peace treaty just a few years before License to Quill takes place. And Guy Fawkes is one of these many Catholics in uh, England who truly viewed himself as basically a saint in the making. They believed that if they did a massive terrorist attack that would completely destroy uh, the entire English monarchy, parliament, all their leaders, that it would cause a civil war that would overthrow the Protestants in England, would make England Catholic again, and would ultimately immortalize them in history. So it's a radical departure from the Guy Fawkes that we see in V for Vendetta. Basically, in real life, Guy Fawkes was not a freedom fighter. He did not believe in individual liberty. He was basically a radical terrorist. So what on earth does all of this have to do with Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe? Well, this is where it gets very interesting. When we look at England during the English Renaissance, we picture, you know, this very pretty, almost this regal era from uh, Shakespeare and Love. It wasn't like that at all. Shakespeare grew up in the London from 1984. He grew up in the London from B for Vendetta. I'm quoting a scholarly source. Shakespeare's London was a Gestapo-esque police state. There were thought police everywhere. There were spies everywhere. I even saw maps that the government kept of individual towns where each house was color-coded based on whether people there were suspected of treason. 
So because there were spies all over the place, in Shakespeare's case and in Marlowe's case, you had people here who were writing plays and were mingling with quite a few folk in London. It was a ripe opportunity for espionage. Christopher Marlowe in particular, he was a spy for the English government. We have it written from the Privy Council. He disappeared during his graduate studies. Then he reappeared with a bunch of money to spend and a letter from the Privy Council that said Marlowe should be allowed to continue his studies because he was in the service of the government. That is real history, and it is awesome because we do not know what he did. Furthermore, when it comes to Guy Fawkes and Shakespeare in particular, this is where it gets very interesting. In 1601, at the tail end of Queen Elizabeth's reign, what happened is one of her rivals, it was a younger man who was actually considered briefly her heir, his name was the Earl of Essex, representatives of the Earl of Essex met with actors at Shakespeare's acting company that was uh, the Queen's men at the time, the Globe Theatre, which had just been built. And Shakespeare's men were recruited to do a one-night-only production. It was Richard II, I believe. Now, this is where it gets odd. Shakespeare and his men had to do a one-night-only performance, and it was an older play, so it wasn't very popular. And Shakespeare and his men were paid an extra 40 shillings to perform the play with one deleted scene that had been censored by the government included. Shakespeare performed the scene and uh, the whole play. The next morning, the Earl of Essex staged a coup d'etat attempt. So it was that incredible background, the idea that Shakespeare, and we have the interrogations of this, this, one of the actors from the Globe Theater was interrogated by the English government to see what the hell happened. Like, was this Shakespeare and his actors played a role, whether they knew it or not, in a coup d'etat attempt against the Queen? And we have the record that said, oh, it was just business, they were just being hired. The next morning, the Earl of Essex was beheaded. People from Shakespeare's own audience were arrested and imprisoned. Shakespeare and his entire cast of characters could have been killed. It's this remarkable background, just this pressure cooker that London was like at this time. And just this world that's almost like Casablanca, spies everywhere, so many people, even actors. These people are masters at wearing false faces. I got that entire environment and used that as my cast of characters and ultimately my narrative, where I would be building license to quill upon and just having as much fun as I could with. When you refer to um, the Earl of Essex and this plot that centered around a performance of Shakespeare, is that the gunpowder plot? No, that wasn't the gunpowder plot. Now, this is where it gets pretty funny. There was a whole bunch of plots during this time period. The English government was warranted in their suspicions about treason all around them. There were a lot of plots during this time. The Earl of Essex plot is very simply called the Essex Rebellion. And it was essentially a last-ditch effort by the Earl of Essex to overthrow Queen Elizabeth during the last, really the last months of her life. And there's an interesting twist to the story. Queen Elizabeth had a punishment for Shakespeare and his men. Although they escaped culpability for what they did, she had them perform for her in private, the same exact play with the same exact deleted scene included, the deposition scene, where the argument of the scene is that a monarch can rightfully be overthrown if he or she has lost the trust of the people. So it was. It must have been scary as hell for Shakespeare and his actors. It must have been like a scene of Game of Thrones. They were brought in front of the queen, forced to perform this play that had just been used in a revolution, a failed revolution, and they were probably expecting to be killed on the spot at any moment. So against this backdrop, there's also the gunpowder plot. Well, eventually Elizabeth died, and the uh, the man who took her place was the son of Bloody Mary, Mary Queen of Scots. He was King seen James. first. 
Exactly. Now, the thing with King James is a lot of Catholics in England thought, all right, so we're going to have a very, very pro-Catholic monarch now. And that didn't really happen. So people like, um, including veterans from the Earl of Essex Rebellion, those who survived the executions, they gathered together again, and specifically many of them from Warwickshire, which is where Shakespeare was from. Guy Fawkes and Robert Catsby, all that, that cast of characters, they got together and they started commiserating and trying to think of what can we do to prevent this Kenny who they felt betrayed them. And it looks like Guy Fawkes was the one, because of his experience with gunpowder, he suggested that uh, they just rent this one apartment directly under Parliament, fill it with gunpowder, and just blow it up, killing everybody in Parliament. And how is that related to the Scottish play? Well, the truth is, the gunpowder plot did take place while Shakespeare was either writing Macbeth or immediately before it. Shakespeare references the gunpowder plot. He even references very indirect parts of the gunpowder plot. For example, in real life, there was a medallion that was struck commemorating the defeat of Guy Fawkes and his conspirators, and it shows a snake in a garden surrounded by Tudor flowers and roses. And Shakespeare references that in one scene where Lady Macbeth says to Macbeth to be as gentle as a flower, but then like a attack like a serpent. So there's many references to the gunpowder plot and Guy Fawkes' Pharisee in Macbeth. And what I decided to do is to not show that it was coincidental, but I wanted to explain a little bit of the background behind Macbeth. Some of the real history, such as the sources that Shakespeare used, which were based on English and Scottish records, and also to explain why Macbeth is so mysterious. Why is it his only Scottish play? Why does it involve the bloodlines of England's new king, which is King James? And I just felt one of the most exciting ways to do that is to have Macbeth actually be introduced in the story as a weapon of war by Guy Fawkes, as an attempt to duplicate what the Earl of Essex tried to do and what he failed to do, which is to use a play by Shakespeare to galvanize support in London and ultimately launch a revolution. That's fantastic. This is fascinating material. You sound like an Elizabethan conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is, a good, this is where it gets so fun when it comes to writing these books. I got to invent my own conspiracy theories. I mean, there was plenty of real history. There were plenty of real plots and real villains, real rogues, real highwaymen from this time period. And I just had all of them on the table, and I got to say, all right, I need to find a way to connect them all. I mean, naturally, sometimes the connections are real, sometimes it's peripheral. But ultimately, as an author, it just comes down to making the conspiracy make sense, sort of answering questions from history through the conspiracy, which is ultimately the point of many conspiracies, is to make order out of chaos. So by getting all these questions, why is Shakespeare's life a bit of a mystery? Why is Macbeth such a mysterious play? Was it coincidence that Macbeth and uh, the gunpowder plot seemed to happen at the same time? I just got all that real history and, again, those real people involved in it, real circumstances, but connecting them together to make the whole of history during this time period from England to Istanbul just look like this perfectly synchronized clock. I'm intrigued. We're speaking with Jacopo Della Quercia about his novel, License to Quill. What books did you read or what kind of research did you do for License to Quill? Well, as with my previous book, The Great Abraham Lincoln Pockwash Conspiracy, which focused more on American history, I almost always started with museums, scholars, professors. I would go to them and say, what books do I need to read? And just some of the books that I've read, I'm actually looking at my little library right now. 
all right, you're going to like this because I have these two books next to each other. This shows the, the sort of the opposite poles of research that went into my book. On one side of the shelf, I have Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays by Tina Packer. And I really, really, really wanted to do the best research I could so that the women in the book were not only interesting characters, but that they were based on how women really were at this time period. There's so many different, just all these different lives that women lived at the time. And I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to talk about female surgeons. There are three licensed female surgeons and an estimated 10 unlicensed female surgeons at the time. I wanted to tell their story. I wanted to tell the background of the witches from Shakespeare's Macbeth, the witchcraft trials and the manhunts going on during this time period. Now, on the opposite side of the shelf, I'm looking at Medieval Combat, a 15th century manual on sword fighting and close quarter combat by Hans Kalhofer, translated and edited by Mark Rector. This is a 15th century manual on fighting and it's all illustrated it's fantastic it's one of the it's some of the most fun that i have with the book just researching all the weapons all the materials that they had and also some of the gadgets that they actually used during this time period and lastly some of the methods that they used in fighting this is the kind of material that i would just work together as best as i could and try to illustrate and depict in the story the most historically accurate fight choreography that I could come up with. Oh, that's fantastic. So those are the extremes of my research. I would consult the scholars, um, all the histories, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, I had all the primary material, all of the, the writing from the time period with all its idiocentric spelling. I loved that. Those were the sources that I wanted to drop footnotes in. In some cases, we actually see in the book the original documents that these people were handling. How, like, even Shakespeare, like, he didn't even spell his own name the same way all the time. It was a very interesting moment in the history of the English language, and I loved um, doing the best that I could to capture it. Jacopo, we know that an incredible amount of research went into writing this novel, and that you've also taken some artistic license with the history surrounding this time period, and you directly reference that in your novel. There's an excerpt in chapter two that mm -hmm. speaks to artistic license. I wonder if you would share that excerpt with us. I will. And just to quickly put this excerpt I'm about to read in context, chapter two, this chapter is called The Players. It's where we meet William Shakespeare and his actors at the Globe Theater rehearsing Julius Caesar. I just want to say, as an author, this was one of the most important chapters in the story, because this is the chapter that explains the rules of how the book is written. I had the opportunity to write this book in early modern English, with all the vows and all that kind of stuff. I could have done that, and I wrote my first chapters that way. But I ultimately realized something, which I'm going to have William Shakespeare as the character from the book explain right now. He's being challenged by his actors because there's an anachronism, a somewhat ostentatious anachronism in Julius Caesar, where the conspirators in Julius Caesar paused and they said, count the clocks. There were no clocks in ancient Rome, and his actors are calling him out on that. This is what Shakespeare says. I think we can all agree that more people believe in ghosts than speak Latin these days. While it would be interesting to explore the latter, it would ultimately alienate audiences we otherwise could attract. Besides, the bitter truth is that the Latin tongue from Caesar's day is extinct. Even if we tested your offer, it would still be built upon fantasy. Historical accuracy is simply impossible in this play. Artistic licenses must be taken. And since we are all licensed artists, I suggest we choose the route that entertains the most audiences. They are the ones who make our plays possible, after all. I say we owe it to them, even if just as a return investment. 
So in that chapter, I have the character of William Shakespeare explaining to his own actors his theory to drama, how to write drama, specifically how to write his histories. And he's saying it's impossible to be faithful to history. It's in ancient Rome, and his actors are saying, why are we speaking English? He says, if we were speaking Latin, it would still be inaccurate because we do not know what Latin looked like back then. He's laying out the ground rules for why this book is written in what is essentially American English. I chose to write this book in a way that, true to Shakespeare's plays, would appeal to the largest audience possible because ultimately that was Shakespeare's motivation. I'm explaining through this quote from William Shakespeare himself that in order to be true to Shakespeare's writing style, we have to take artistic liberty. So the question is begged then, and how do you think Shakespeare would feel about the proliferation of alternative versions of his work, works inspired by, like your book, and productions that tinker with his original pieces? Well, it's definitely fair to say that William Shakespeare, I truly believe that Shakespeare never expected his work to be probably the most famous catalog of literature in the history of the English language. I don't think he would have expected people in the Americas or in the Far East to be rehearsing or performing his plays in different tongues. It just, I don't think he could have fathomed that. But when it comes to just trying to think in Shakespeare's shoes, I mean, the people who knew him best described him as not of an age, but for all time. So I think he might have hoped that he would become famous enough that his plays would be performed past his lifetime, which of course would mean it would be changed, there'd be variations, the races of his actors would be different. It's incredible. I mean, Shakespeare and his plays have sort of become colorblind to races now. Mm. And all of this, I imagine, would have surprised Shakespeare, but ultimately he would have been flattered. I don't think there's a higher compliment Shakespeare could be paid than to be notified that he has become regarded as the greatest Brit in history. Well, let me ask you a question as an artist, if you can answer this, and I'll challenge you to answer this in 25 words or less. All right, I'll take it. Are you ready? Yeah. As an artist, what's more important to you, truth or fiction? Well, truth is beauty, and fiction, in some cases, makes the truth a little bit more beautiful. Wow, what a beautiful statement. Well done. Truth is its own work of art. Fiction is the frame that you put around it. I think in a way, if you do have a wonderful period in history like I do, if you have these wonderful people to be working with these real circumstances, that is the paint, that is the matter that you're working with. The fiction is the dressing that you put on to make it possible, that holds it all together. So the two of them can be used together to tell not only a very enjoyable story, but hopefully a very artistically pleasing story, which is really what I'm going for. And I hope that whoever gives this book an opportunity to please them, I hope they will find their investment returned in full. Well, certainly it draws you in very quickly. And the plots and the, and the machinations are all really fascinating and fun to, uh, and fun to follow. Okay. Well, one thing I tried to do, of course, is you can tell from the title that it is, on surface, a James Bond-esque spy thriller. I mean, William Shakespeare, we know he's a great, we know he's a great playwright. I just that everybody who would be reading this book has an idea of what Shakespeare is like when they turn the first page. When it comes to him being a spy, when it comes to him joining the double O, which I love, I love how the real life place where he would be working would be the ordinance office, which we call the double O in the book. That needs to be introduced. And the, the important thing is, it can't be, like, we can't dwell on it too much. We have to show this is what England is like. Just throw the reader right into it and let them figure it out for themselves. If they have questions, 
they'll eventually learn how to answer their own questions. And ultimately, uh, the book itself, it's like I said, I really wrote it in the style of a spy thriller. It should be something that is familiar to people. Oh, I absolutely cottoned on to it quite quickly as I was reading it. You and I talked about the scene uh, in the ordinance office with Francis Bacon where it feels like James <laughs> Bond M. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a lot of people. Um, yeah, they really like um, when it comes to the M-like character. Well, of course, I mean, it's worth saying that M in the James Bond universe was based on a real person from the uh, the OSS, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, yeah, in this case, there were real-life spy masters. I got to get uh, one of them and dress him up a little bit. And the main thing that I love so much about it is, even if it's a real person, it doesn't matter to the audience. The important thing is they have to read real. So I really wanted that character to not simply seem like, you know, a stand-in for those characters, but I wanted to find this real-life person who in real life was very intimately involved with Christopher Marlowe and uh, his career and show that, yes, if with some artistic license, this person could have been a spy master during this time period. And of course, Sir Francis Bacon could have been a little bit of a, a quartermaster during this time period. There you go. Fantastic. Well... This, is, this has just been an enjoyable interview, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, thank you. It's a privilege and a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Jacopo, this is really, really intriguing and fun material. It sounds, I would love to get together and have a drink with you sometime. You'll, you'll forgive me, though, if I insist on you tasting it first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Wait, is it poison? <laughs> I'll have to bring some, what is it? I'll have to bring some of that Tierra Firma, whatever it's called. But um, I would look at it this way. If my writing is so inspiring that it's actually convincing people to try to poison me, then I know I've made it in this business. (laughs) (laughs) Yakubo, where can people find License to Quill? It's available everywhere. Bookstores, online, Kindle, paperback, anything. So all you have to do is just go to whatever store you want, or you can go to my author's website, pocketwatchconspiracy.com. You can find links to any resource you want for buying my book, and you can even get signed copies on my website. Terrific. Jacopo, thank you so much for being our guest today on The State of Shakespeare. Thank you so much. had a wonderful time. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.